0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. How's everybody doing this morning? We'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Well, first, I want to say I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here in a teaching capacity. I was here a few weeks ago, and I think everybody's back, so that's good. Um, So this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at Psalm 51. Um, But before we get into it, I'd like to take you back to about three weeks ago. Um, We looked at the historical context and story leading into Psalm 63. We spent a lot of time walking through David's life. Uh, we looked at... In 2 Samuel, we uh, hit some of the significant points in David's life that ultimately culminated in him fleeing from Absalom, and if you remember, it, it ended up in Absalom's death. Um, and then David you know, wrote Psalm 63 in that, uh, that Death Valley-like wilderness that we talked about. The five takeaways that I had from that lesson were, um, no matter the circumstances, seek God. The second one was, remember God's blessings. Uh, The third one was praise the Lord, and then the fourth one, remember that vengeance is the Lord's, and finally the fifth one was rejoice. So that psalm was written during a very difficult uh, moment in David's life, and today we're going to be looking at another psalm that was written at a difficult moment in David's life. This one is um, when Nathan uh, confronted David about his sin. So we did look at that story, uh, we covered a, a little bit of it, so we'll hit some of the same stuff again, uh, but repetition is the mother of learning is what I hear, so that's, that's a good thing. Uh, before we get any further, uh, let's go ahead and take a moment to pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for each person here. Um, I thank you for the opportunity to worship on this Lord's Day together. Uh, Lord, please help me as I speak. And help those that are listening here in person uh, or at a later time uh, through the recording uh, to have a clear understanding of your word. Uh, I thank you for your loving kindness towards us uh, and your steadfast love that that endures forever. Uh, Thank you for your work of your Son on the cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. All right, so as I mentioned, our main text uh, is going to be Psalm 51. And that's actually going to be our main text for the next two weeks. So this week, we're going to look closely at the historical background, and we're going to carefully consider David's sin. Our goal is that we're going to look at this, this situation in David's life to understand why he sinned, and not only that, we want to understand why he remained unrepentant uh, for a significant period of time, and we're going to see that God uses one of the darkest moments of a godly man's life to teach us about sin as well as his mercy, grace, and loving kindness towards sinners. It reminds me of Genesis 50, when Joseph, speaking to his brothers, uh, who sold him to slavery before uh, he was providentially lifted into one of the highest positions of the land, he wrote, uh, or Moses wrote, "As As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Then he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So I'm sure you're all familiar with the story of Joseph, and isn't it amazing how God can take an evil situation and use it for his glory and the blessing of his people? In the situation with Joseph, his brothers initially wanted his death, but God had other plans and kept them from starvation and protection for God's chosen nation. So I hope that after we finish reading Psalm 51, uh, you'll see how God uses this evil situation in David's life for his glory and the blessing of his people. All right, so we're going to start by reading, again, Psalm 51. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. And just to prepare you, we do have a lot of scriptures to go through this morning to get the full, full context of, of what's happening. Um, so again, we'll, we'll spend a lot of background time this week. And then uh, next week, we'll, we'll actually spend a lot more time in Psalm 51. Um, and there's a method that the reason that we're taking this approach. Uh, we're really going to focus on sin this week. And, and then next week, we're going to focus on repentance. And my thought process on that was uh, just like when you preach the gospel to an unbeliever, you need to hear the bad news first. And so this week, I really want us to grapple with, the, with our sin, And really think through our sin. And the next week, look at repentance and what true repentance looks like. All right, so Psalm 51, it starts off with, For the Choir Director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So I want to stop there for just a moment, and I wanted to share with you guys Um, This past week, for VBS, all the kids were coming in, and uh, it was a great time, but one of the focuses was on the sanctity of life. And these posters were hung up uh, in the front of the church, so the first thing that you do is you walk in and you see these posters. And I just thought it was a a great testimony to uh, life, so just want to say thank you to everyone that was involved in the VBS. But I thought that was really really cool and it's I hit this point where it talks about um, it does say in sin my mother conceived me we just need to remember that you know life begins at conception and uh, so just wanted to hit that point real quick behold you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean wash me and I shall be whiter than snow let me hear joy and gladness Then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings then bulls will be offered on your altar all right so as we were reading you might have noticed that david placed a lot of emphasis on his sin so during our study today i really want us to get back to the fundamentals which is what i think david was doing for himself as he was thinking through his sin How could such a godly man like David commit sins with such devastating consequences? What can we learn to avoid um, committing the same sins? Not only that, but we need to consider how David, around age 49 or 50, could remain in unrepentant sin for at least nine months, and maybe even longer than that. We don't know exactly how old the child was uh, when the child died. However long it was, it was a significant amount of time to remain in unrepentant sin especially when you consider the gravity of the sins that were committed. So we're going to read through a good portion of 2 Samuel. Uh, So keep these questions in the back of your mind as we're reading through the narrative. So in 2 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Oh, sorry, that's uh, 2 Samuel 11. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So just stopping right there. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Recently, there have been some well-known teachers who take the position that Bathsheba was raped. Uh, In fact, this past week, social media has kind of been a buzz about this topic. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. However, um, I don't see... Uh, rape clearly stated in the story and I don't really think that's a fair reading of the text um, what David did was heinous enough and if the scripture is silent uh, then I think we should be careful in adding to it um, again there's a lot that's been spoken of on this past week and there's some good discussions uh, Doug Wilson's blog this past week I thought did a nice job at addressing it um, and then there's a guy out of Lindale named Gabe Hughes he did a podcast that was released actually yesterday that I thought was helpful So, all right, let's go back to verse 6. So, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So you might be wondering why Uriah is unwilling to go spend time with his wife. Well, uh, if we look back in 1 Samuel 21, and you don't have to turn there, but when David ate the consecrated bread, he was actually fleeing from Saul. And we learned there that there was a wartime ban on conjugal relations. So Uriah was merely following the expectations uh, set forth by David many years earlier. <laughs> so on to verse 12. and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew uh, were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, Then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So this is an interesting moment, obviously tragic, um, but they give an example of Abimelech and a millstone being dropped on his head. And this example Joab uh, gives, it shows that, the, that David's group had learned from the, the military leaders. They had studied their history, and they actually based their military ta- tactics off to what they'd learned from the failures uh, of others in, say, the book of Judges. Uh, so in, in that example, um, again, Abimelech got too close to, uh, to the city wall, Uh, A millstone was dropped on his head, so they learned, okay, let's, as a rule of thumb, let's stay away from city walls, because bad (laughs) things happen. So again, David asked his men to violate principles that he had set forth for their safety. So on to verse 22, the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messengers said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and another. Strengthen your attack against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So that last sentence again. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So that's a, that's a scary last sentence. All right, so in this next section, we're going to look at how Nathan confronted David with his sin. And I want you to consider a couple of things. So David is still king. So for Nathan to confront him as king was a pretty courageous thing. It was a serious deal. Anytime you go before the king to point something out that they've done wrong, um, you might not walk out of the encounter. Also, um, something else to consider: David is a. I'm sorry. Nathan is a prophet. And so when Nathan walks up to David, you know, I was thinking about this. Wouldn't wouldn't David automatically think, uh, okay, here's a prophet of God. Maybe I need to reflect on what I've been doing. Um, there was one commentary that I looked at that said that, you know, it's possible that Nathan had come to him before with lesser matters, and this was just another situation that David might be judging. So whatever the case, again, it is the prophet of God that's coming before David. And the Lord said to Nathan, sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, uh, to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. So I wonder if Nathan paused and let the gravity of those words hit David like a ton of bricks. Remember, David had just declared that the man in the parable deserved to die. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. In verse 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would, have, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up uh, up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. I know we just read a lot, but I just think it's so helpful with this particular story to think through the full context of, of what happened in, uh, in David's life. And then to, to me, just, the, just that moment, again, where, where um, David has the encounter with, with Nathan and just the gravity of that conversation. And I thought it was really interesting that, that Nathan chose to, to approach the situation with a parable uh, one book I found it was by a guy named uh, Klein Snodgrass. Uh, he's got a book on parables called Stories with Intent, and he writes, parables function as a lens that allow us to see the truth and to correct distorted vision. They allow us to see what we would not otherwise see, and they presume we should look and see a specific reality. So there was a very specific reality that Nathan had in mind in this situation, and it was to point out that... <laughs> David had, had sinned before the Lord, and, uh, both in adultery and killing Uriah the Hittite. Now, Nathan could have just as easily walked in and said, David, you've broken the commandment not to, not to commit adultery and not to murder. God's angry with you. What do you have to say for yourself? I think Nathan exhibited a significant amount of care and concern for David that allowed David to experience dramatic outrage towards injustice. And then the gut punch reality that he was the man. Proverbs 27.5 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And I think Nathan was a friend to David even in that difficult moment. For Nathan, there was no guarantee that David would repent. There are other examples in the Old Testament where the people's hearts were hardened towards parables of judgment. But we see by God's grace that David did repent. All right, so we spent a a good amount of time uh, looking at the account of 2 Samuel. And with our remaining time today, I'd like for us to try to understand what the the Scriptures teach on sin in general. And I think this will lay the foundation as we move into next week and talk about repentance. So the way that we're going to do that is we're actually going to utilize the 1689 Confession. And uh, I've been fighting a cough all week. Like, this whole time right now, I just, like need a cough, but I'm fighting through it. Um, all right, so the 1689 Confession. <coughs> um, if you look on the board, this is not my handwriting. Thank you, Lee. Uh, so if you go to that website, um, it'll give you access, or you can order these online. They're like four bucks a piece. But um, I really like them because uh, I didn't grow up with in a, in a confessional church, didn't grow up in a Reformed church. And so to come to Cornerstone... And I think we were going through, like, the Heidelberg Catechism when I first got here. And uh, that just really, going through the confessions and having, like, such great men in the past that that spent so much time, uh, you know, putting these together, I found them very helpful. And, like, whenever uh, Caleb and and Corey and I were meeting with uh, the Mormons, uh, sometimes we would just, like, they'd throw something out there, and we'd just, you know, pull up the 1689 and say, well, no— here, here's the doctrines that we we hold to, and uh, we think we ended up giving them a copy as well. Um, so, anyways, uh, we're going to look at uh, chapter six, which is the fall of mankind and sin and its punishment. <clears throat> All right. So, uh, the first one is uh, God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept uh, had kept it but threatened death if they they broke it. Uh, We saw that again with David. He he realized that he deserved to die in the parable. Uh, Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, and then he uh, seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit this act, because he had purposed to direct it for his own glory. So the reason I, I, again, I wanted to start off here and just looking at this first one, you know, the the law has always been uh, the key to a right relationship with the Lord. Adam was unable to keep the righteous law, and we saw just now David was unable to keep the law either. And ultimately Christ, born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, kept the law on our behalf. Again, did you notice how powerful it was for da- for Nathan to confront David with God's law, to convict David of his sin? Romans 7 teaches us that without the law, we would not have known sin. Thankfully, God has given us his law so that we may know what pleases him and to bring conviction of sin. And I know it's been a while since we pulled up Psalm 51, but... When, he talk, when David talks about his transgressions, this means that he understands the laws he has broken. Uh, David had a much uh, better and clearer understanding of God's law than Adam, since he had the writings of, writings of Moses. Um, a few weeks ago, we we looked at this passage, uh, but I talked about in, how in Deuteronomy, uh, David would have had uh, some, some teaching there for, for himself, and it, it says... And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. It shall be kept with him, or it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right, uh, right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So again, that was the expectation for the king, uh, was to continually have God's law before him. And I think that's really important because, you know, the, the, the responsibility of the king was he was ruling over uh, all of Israel. And therefore, if he didn't stay close to the law, then all of Israel was going to turn from the law. So, all right, moving on to 6.2 here in in the 1689 by the sin our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God we fell in them and through this death came upon all all became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body by God's appointment they were the root and the re- representatives of a whole human race because of this the guilt of their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from, the, from them by ordinary procreation. Their descendants are now conceived in sin. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 51 yeah. And are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin and partakers of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. So again, in Psalm 51... Verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, just to clarify, this does not mean that David's mother committed adultery or some other sexual sin in his conception. This, again, is referring to original sin. And I find it interesting that in Psalm 51, David felt the need to acknowledge original sin. He goes back to that and I think that's important for our understanding of depravity. Our, our fallen nature consistently lies to us. And i found that if I've been in unrepentant sin, then I minimize my sins and the impact of my sin nature. If you have kids, you know that they have a fallen nature. You don't have to teach your kids to sin. It just comes naturally, or at least it does for my, na- my kids. Vodi <clears throat> Bauckham's description of children is that they are vipers and diapers, I did a quick search on that yesterday, and there's actually a guy in the UK who talks about Bacham's theology and says it promotes child abuse. And I think that's because there's a failure to understand what the Bible teaches about original sin. Original sin is also a doctrine that is constantly under attack. Uh, In fact, I think, you know, every conversation I've had with a a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, it always kind of goes back to, "We're, we're good people. Um... So again, you might hear, you're a good person. Or if you're dealing with someone that's been influenced by critical race theory, then you're gonna hear uh, that racism is the original sin. And I think that it's so foundational to our understanding of, of you know, the, the depraved nature. That's why it's always under attack. So again, continuing on through the confession, uh, 6.4 says, all actual transgressions arise from this first corruption. By it, we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good and we are completely inclined toward all that is evil and one of the handy things about the 1689 at least whenever you go online is if you hover over it it'll give you different passages and one of the ones that it had there was matthew Matthew 15 19 and it says for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness and slander this is the default human setting And the final point of the confession reads, During this life, this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated. Even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, yet both this corruption of nature and all actions arising from it are truly and actually sin. So I think this final point is very helpful and one we must not forget. Uh, The corrupt nature remains in those who are regenerated. So, that's us. So, regenerated, just to make sure we're clear on that, means that we've been brought to new life, born again. David was a regenerate believer who was looking forward to Christ, but obviously still struggled with sin. A couple of fallacies that I've noticed for believers is that for a new believer, some don't realize that they'll continue to sin after they are saved. Then for the believer who's been a Christian for a while, uh, they don't, um, let's see, Uh, the Christian that's been a believer for a while, they think they can put life on spiritual cruise control and not really worry about God and the scriptures. They no longer see sin as a threat. 1 John 3 teaches us that sin is lawlessness. When we stop fearing God, then we have no regard for his law. I don't know about you, but for me, usually it starts small. And I'm going to speculate that David likely had been willing to compromise for some time. So let's look at Matthew 5 for a moment and see how Jesus um, speaks about adultery in particular. This is 527. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. I'm looking around, everybody still has their right eye here and right hand, so that's, that's good. It, obviously, figurative language, but very serious in the way that Jesus treats, uh, sees, treats sin. But notice, the problem begins with lustful intent. When we have desires that are against God's law, um, that, that's the source of the issue. And that was the source of the issue for David. He looked, he lusted... And then he continued on. And I, I would be willing to bet that he probably had been struggling with, with not taming those lustful desires for a while. Uh, just, and again, this, this is just my thought. This, it's not said in Scripture, but just based off of uh, my own life and, and thinking through, uh, you know, sitting and talking with, with lots of young men. All right, so um, the erosion of fear of God leads to compromises on God's law. And so I've got a, a book here that that our home group is going through right now that, that I highly recommend. We've, um, I think you can ask them to and see if they like it. But it's called Triumphing Over Sinful Fear by John Flavel, and just um, been an excellent book. And I'm going to read a, a short portion of it. But uh, there is, like this is the more modernized version. Uh, although the only complaint that we have about it is even though they modernized it, they left the King James in there, and so um, that that's uh, that's our own complaint. Mm-hmm. All right, so... Clavel says, It is the law and the accompanying fear of punishment that keeps the world in order. People are afraid to do evil because they are afraid to suffer for it. They see that the law has inseparably linked moral and punishable evils together. If they presume to commit the one, they must necessarily suffer the other. This keeps them in some order and decorum. Without law, there would be no order or security. If laws had no penalties annexed to them, they would have no no more power to restrain our corruptions than the new ropes had to bind Samson. And yet, even if the severest penalties are annexed to laws, they are meaningless without natural fear. It is a tender, sensible passion deeply affected by threats. It brings people under moral government and restraint. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Romans 13. By this by this means fear restrains and prevents a world of evil. The reality is that for most of us if there is no consequence for our actions then we'll do whatever we want. For example, how fast would you drive down the road if there's not a speed limit? Initially, maybe you'd start off slow and consider your neighbors around you, but inevitably, inevitably, and maybe it's just me, maybe I'm the only person here that would do this, but oh, I really need to get to Sunday school uh, or prayer meeting because I'm going to be late again. And so zipping down the road we go. Um, so I'm, I'm going to guess that many of us do that, uh, even, even without a speed limit. <laughs> All right, so when, when I sin... Uh, however, what is really concerning to me is, is when I continue to suppress the truth uh, and my conscience. It's really hard to imagine what went through David's mind during the long period when he was confronted by Nathan. Did he think that he had gotten away with it? Did he think he was justified in his actions? Did he just completely block it out of his mind? And then keep in mind that this was a very public sin. Bathsheba knew. The servants who went to get Bathsheba knew. Joab at least knew that he had murdered Uriah. It's hard to exactly know what was going through David's mind because the scriptures are silent. However, we see in verse verse 8 of Psalm 51 that David says, Let the bones which you crushed rejoice. And Matthew Henry writes, But during these nine months, we may well suppose uh, his comforts and the exercises of his grace is suspended, and his communion with God interrupted. During all that time, it is certain he penned no psalms, his harp was out of tune and his soul like a tree in winter, that his life in the root only. Maybe he had felt the metaphorical crushing of his bones during this time of unrepentance. I do think it's very likely that he felt some form of conviction for his sin, up to the point where he was finally confronted by Nathan. And remember, too, he was living constantly surrounded by God's holiness. Uh, he, was, he was in Jerusalem, and he had the tabernacle, he had the Ark of the Covenant there. In the same way, when we are in unrepentant sin, the Lord's Day of Worship and the Lord's Su- Supper are also consistent reminders for us that are specifically designed to call us to repentance. I think Cody does an excellent job of that every Sunday during his, uh, I'm not sure what you call the talks after the scripture reading. So, <clears throat> All right, so we've covered a lot of ground this morning, but what are our key takeaways Remember our questions from, from earlier. How could such a godly man like David commit sins with devastating consequences? What can we learn to avoid committing the same sins or, or others? So the first thing I have is to, uh, to fear God. The scriptures describe us like sheep. Has anybody seen that video on uh, Twitter or Facebook, the, the one of the sheep that uh, is stuck in the ditch and the guy walks over and he, he's yanking the sheep, and he finally gets the sheep out. And within three seconds, the sheep goes about five feet and goes straight back into the ditch. Does that remind you of, I mean, I'm, I feel like that's my life story right there. <clears throat> so, again, when we, when we are like that sheep, we're like uh, we, we ignore God's law and head straight for the ditch. And David was a man just like us. And he acted like a sheep at times and allowed himself to get caught up into unrepentant sin for a season. If it can happen to him, it can happen to us. David understood that he should fear God because God is holy and the law is a reflection of of God's holiness. We spent time talking about sins like adultery and murder, but we mustn't walk away thinking our little sins are acceptable to God or okay. Part of fearing God is remembering God's law. Matthew 5.19 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, That leads me to the second point here. Love God's law. It's easy to view the law in a negative light since there's punishment attached. However, the law is wonderful for those who love God. Once you start to see the blessings... And the benefits of the law, you see them in a different light. Do not commit adultery. Helps you to understand that you are to cherish the wife of your youth. I went to look at my wife and then I lost my place. Um, uh, Let's see here. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Helps you to give thanks for what God has given you. Uh, I would encourage you to spend time soaking in Psalm one nineteen. It's pretty long, so I'll, I'm just going to read the first letter. And Psalm nineteen is is uh, the, the Hebrew alphabet, and and it goes through and gives you teachings on God's law on each one. Uh, but it says, "Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently." Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your, st- your statutes, that I shall not be put, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The final point I have is, remember that point one and point two are done by God's power. Anything that God asks you to do, you're still dependent on, on him to do it. We're going to spend the entire lesson next week talking about repentance so this is just a teaser but fearing god and loving god are done in his power so those first two points again done in his power just like the air that you're breathing in into your lungs uh, is provided by the lord but you do that with the lord you're breathing in and he's giving you the air in fact he's holding us together right now by his power we get to participate in the process in our sanctification But ultimately, we are constantly dependent on the Lord to hold us together and keep providing us air. So in closing, we're going to go back to Psalm 51 again and read through it. Um, So again, it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar.